Good evening, hushlings, and welcome. I present your preceptors to the underbelly of the void, the whispers of conjecture, and the known of the unknown. Thus begins the conclave of the Hush Hush Society. fellow members of the Branch Hushtillians, welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, where we journey into the world of conspiratorial mysteries and dark truths. I'm one of your daddies this evening, Declassified Dave. And I'm Mystery Mike. And as always, we're joined by our fellow Lamb of God, Slick Frank Sanders. Let's start a cult. Let's start a cult. Let's start cult, a cult. Cult, 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 cult. What would we call it? Branch Hushtillians. I think it yeah. sounds great. Might get hit with copyright, but you think the the actual branch will come after us? I really hope we get sued by Alex Jones <laughs> this April. Anyways, boys, how'd you feel about that David Koresh musical intro? The whole record that he did slaps. It's good front to back, and you know what's funny about Mister Koresh is that. On top of the man's passion for Armageddon, having sex with people, and being uh, the Lord, he was obsessed with uh, rock and roll. And in his early 20s, moved to Hollywood with those hopes and dreams of becoming a hair metal rock star. And like everyone else, his dreams were shattered. He moved back to Texas, to Waco, changed his fucking name, and started attracting different types of groupies of the religious kind. And uh, he even sold David Koresh... God rocks t-shirts. So is he essentially saying that he rocked because he saw himself as God? I would imagine. A very masturbatory t-shirt. Mm. Mm. Two birds, one stone. Hushlings, welcome to our 70th debriefing another season finale. We absolutely can't believe it. It's pretty wild, and we are very humbled to see the growth of our cult. I mean, our following, our listeners, you guys are fantastic. We love you. Mm. Um, we are wicked stoked to see what the future holds for the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour, and you will hear some of that first right here today. Oh, Hushlings, we have cookies and high C for everyone. Join us. It was a 51-day standoff that shocked the nation and the world. The siege began on February 28th of 1993 when agents from the ATF attempted to serve a search warrant on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. 
What followed was a deadly shootout that left ATF agents and some Branch Davidians dead. The FBI then took over the operation surrounding the compound with tanks, tear gas, and a massive show of force. For weeks, negotiators attempted to communicate with the Branch Davidians, who was led by none other than the charismatic and controversial figure of David Koresh. But as the tensions escalated and supplies dwindled, the FBI and ATF's patience wore thin. On April 19th of 1993, the standoff finally came to a violent and tragic end. The FBI launched a final assault on the compound, using tanks to breach its walls and tear gas to flush out the Branch Davidians. A massive fire erupted, killing 76 people, including 25 children, inside of the compound. In this episode, we'll explore the events that led up to the siege, the key players involved, and the controversies and conspiracy theories, obviously, that continue to swirl around the Waco siege. But before we decide to buy a compound and start our own evangelical gun-running business, just want to remind you, as always, of our social medias, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And hushlings, we enjoy them, we love them, especially when you leave us a little statement, a little comment, reviews. Go on to Spotify, Apple Podcasts are the two big ones. Leave us a five-star rating, leave us a comment if you can, and, you know, we, we, we would be so very thankful. And Hushtillians, don't forget to check out the one-stop shop of Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. That is hushhushsociety.com. You can find all of our episodes, read some other conspiracies with our blogs, check out our merch, some new ones coming. We'll talk about that later. As well as all of our links that Mike mentioned, it's all there. You can buy us a coffee and check out our video portion on Rockfin. That's right, and on Rockfin, you can find us. Just search up Hush Hush Society in that little search bar. You will find all of our episodes, the video episodes, each debriefing in 4K. You can look at us and talk with our hands very, very energetically. We get wonky over here in the video section, so pull on up to the Rockfin. Hit the subscribe button. Please enjoy. Enjoy. And before we get started, Hushlings, just want to let you know, T-Pain is out there covering Ozzy Osbourne songs, in case you you didn't know about that. That's Mike's random random news in the beginning of the episode from now on. We're going to start that new trend. Hey, Mike's got an entertainment business blip that he wants to mention every single time. Uh, One thing we do want to mention, Hushlings, uh, we apologize that this season we did not have any live shows. This live show was supposed to be live. Our show on January 9th was supposed to be live. The internet and the technology powers that be uh, fucked us. So we are working on getting unfucked and we will figure that out this next season. So expect to see a live finale for season eight. Uh, I believe we're not going to be doing mid-season live shows anymore. We tried it. We didn't want to do it anymore. All right, let's talk a little bit about the Branch itself and the Davidians. So the Branch Davidians are often mistaken with the Davidians. The Branch Davidians are actually a Branch sect that was founded separately in 1955 by Ben Roden after the death of the original Davidian founder, Victor T. Hutef. 
1929, Hutef created the Davidians, which is a Seventh-day Adventist reform organization, and it's false under the Protestant Christian denomination. You know, just hearing the words reform organization already is sketchy. A little bit, a little bit. Six years later, Hutef and 37 of his followers relocated two miles from Waco and created the Mount Carmel Center. During the years, the community thrived there, expanding to over 90 people by 1955, where Hudif wielded total power, and his followers saw him as the only one who could reveal Bible truths regarding the end of time. You know what I notice about a lot of cults? It's kind of a recurring theme. Total power? Is that, yeah, the, the followers completely buy into the fact that there is one person, just one person, who just so happens to be their leader, the person that they're following, who has all this prophecy, who has all this power, who has the ability to speak to God, and it's only him, nobody else. And there's no questioning it. There's no backing it up at all. It's just at face value. Yeah, this guy's got the answers. It reminds me of the one and only Top G, Andrew Tate. <laughs> He's got his own little cult following. Free Tate. I ask myself all the time when we do cults, would I get duped? I mean, these are just normal people, you know? How did they get duped? Would you guys get duped by this? Because I personally don't think I would. If some guy's like, hey, you and your wife have to move in with me. I'm going to fuck her. You sit in your bed and deal with it. Yeah, okay. But I'm the prophet. Yeah, sure. It's bizarre. Hushlings, reach out to us. Do you think that you were duped into our cult? I mean, podcast, show, gathering. Anyways, Hutef appointed his second wife, Florence Hutef, to lead the Davidians until the Lord chose another prophet. How convenient. To take charge, and in 1957, the property at Mount Carmel was purchased. Around this time, another follower, Benjamin Rodin, declared that he was the sign the Davidians were looking for. This discredited the prophecy of Florence Hutef, and only a tiny group of followers looked to Rodin as their new prophet. Regardless, Lois Rodin assumed leadership of the branch Davidians following her husband's death. Now, during Lois Rodin's leadership, her son, George Roden claimed to be the Branch Davidian's next heir, but he was not really well liked within the town and his own mother disagreed with him. Nine, you shall not be the next heir. You are not the next heir. And she actually allied herself with another guy named Vernon Howell, who was a young, enthusiastic Bible teacher who had come to Mount Carmel for the first time back in 1981. Howell and his followers relocated to Palestine, Texas, but returned to Mount Carmel two years later to reclaim ownership of the site. And on November 3rd of 1987, after a confrontation at gunpoint, eight men, including Howell, fired at each other before being captured and charged with attempted murder. All of Howell's followers were acquitted, and his case was declared a mistrial. I wanted to get into that a little bit, but it was really deep the drama between Vernon Howell and Mr. Uh, Rodin. But they all got attempted, and they all got off. 
Yeah, there was a lot of stories of Vernon kind of doing these shady things behind Rodin's back and vice versa. Not to mention, Vernon was plowing his mom. Doing your mom, doing your mom. He did some shady business, but how badass is it that you could have a gunfight with like AK-47s in the 80s and all get off? You just fire 200 rounds at each other back and forth. And that's because nobody died, right? So if somebody died, it would probably be a very different story. Yeah. To be fair, it did take place in Texas. So. Yeah, typical Texas yeah. rock star shit. Yeehaw energy. Also, there was the claims that apparently the property was previously owned by some people that were manufacturing meth at the Mount Carmel location. And it's funny because it later comes into play with the involvement of law enforcement and such that Vernon would go and he would tell the law enforcement, hey, we took over this property and we found all this meth equipment and we found all these drugs and we found all this stuff and we just want it cleaned out. We just want it taken care of. In the beginning of all this, Vernon was very much a community man and trying to do the right thing, even though he was a little shifty with Benjamin Roden. Since Rodin owed thousands of dollars in delinquent taxes on Mount Carmel, this led Howell and his followers to raise the funds and reclaim the property. So, so they started selling meth again. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, it was a big compound. Big yeah. kitchens. Well, obviously big kitchens. You need that for meth. Mm. Yeah. Meth. You think maybe that's what caused the fire? Ultimately at the end? There was all the meth, the meth caught fire. Maybe there was like chemical residues all over the place. It is a factor that was played into the involvement of law enforcement, as I said, later on. Mm -hmm. They do kind of use that against him, which sucks because he was being honest about it and telling them what was going on and trying to clear that shit out of there. Or he was cooking meth. He might have been. Hey, <laughs> hey. With a name like Vernon. Vernon's not a big meth manufacturer. He just gave us all of their old equipment two weeks ago. They're not <laughs> making meth over there. Meanwhile, that was just half of it. Yeah. So we keep mentioning this guy, Vernon Howell. Now, Vernon Howell is actually the man who became known as David Koresh, and he was born August 17th, 1958 in Houston, Texas. He was the son of Bonnie Sue Clark and Bobby Wayne Howell, who were only 14 at the time. Wait, wait, both his parents were 14? Uh, I'm not sure about his father, but I know that his mother was 14 at the time of his Well, that birth. that was legal legal age of marriage with consent uh in texas at the time so is it still i mean i'm not i'm not no <laughs> maybe <laughs> it depends on the county it might vernon's father bobby would end up leaving his mother bonnie sue and for the next four years bonnie would be in a relationship with an abusive alcoholic in 1963, eventually, Bonnie left Vernon in the care of his grandmother until he reached the age of seven. In his high school years, Vernon would take on special ed classes due to dyslexia and bad eyesight, and he would go on to drop out of high school in his junior year. Definitely had bad eyesight. You see those whopping glasses? Just whoa, whoa, whoa. fucking bitching. 
you can even see in the picture where he's shredding how thick that lens is. Yeah. Yeah. They're like welding goggles. <laughs> At the age of 19, Vernon had gotten a 15-year-old girl pregnant. And Whoa. afterwards, he conve- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Afterwards, he conveniently claimed he was becoming a born-again Christian. God help us all. <laughs> Jesus provides Jesus is going to raise this baby (laughs) I won't be the father But my father Will be the father (laughs) Figuratively Obviously So we've determined Vernon's voice This is Vernon's voice for the rest of the episode Correct? Uh, He sounds very similar to that I listened to over three hours of phone calls from negotiators and it's it's close it's All close right. spot he's on. got a, he's got a twang a little twang tubular oh well vernon went on to join the seventh day adventist church a sect of the southern baptist church there we mentioned that before it was also a group his mother belonged to sounds like he had a rough one growing up he had a rough start yeah, yeah. yeah. for yeah. sure parents did as well so that's well just sounds... you're 14 and you're popping out babies yeah couldn't imagine being a parent at 14 i don't even think i had a cell phone at 14 <laughs> i couldn't even take care of my hamster at 14 <laughs> <laughs> what did koresh believe compared to the rest of the previous leadership of the branch davidians In a nutshell, his beliefs taught a highly apocalyptic Christian scenario, and he identified himself with the Lamb of Revelation 5, which is traditionally associated with Jesus Christ. And we put the biblical passage in here, and it goes as follows. Quote, Then I saw the Lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. End quote. I, I don't know how to perceive that. I can see how he could relate. I get it. Do you? <laughs> can you? He, he, he just found like a really deep and brutal and descriptive passage and just ran with it. But isn't that like kind of along the lines of every passage that some cult leader picks out for themselves i suppose like oh here comes the apocalypse (laughs) grab your bibles (laughs) give me your 14 year old daughters (laughs) i i don't know how i would identify myself to that single passage well he probably just ripped a random page out of the bible and (laughs) you know picked a verse on that page you know like throwing a dart at a map a little highlighter. Just... Yeah, let let God pick your passage. There you go. He didn't pick it. Now, within his group, David had become the absolute alpha, the top G, the all-knowing one. And absolutely nothing was decided without his discretion. What he said went. During David's reign within the compound, children were disciplined by depriving them of food for very extended periods of time, sometimes up to a day. Later on in interviews, the children rescued from the group said, quote, had a tough time adjusting to non-physical type of punishment, end quote, after leaving the complex. 
Let's talk about the cream of the crop for Koresh, the women. Women had to wear long blouses and no makeup or jewelry could be worn. They said Koresh would tell them where to sleep and what food they could eat. Sugar, processed flour, and dairy products were forbidden. That's not bad, though. No cheese is hard. Dude, he was looking out. Let's keep it real. He was looking out. Do they have, like, the vegan cheese? Bean cheese. Sins as small as spilling a, a little bit of milk, the children said. They were struck with a wooden paddle that was known as the helper. Hold on, hold on. So the children could have milk, but the women couldn't? If they spilled the milk, taking it out of the compound, right? They were trying to get rid of the milk, but if they spilled it, I don't know. I don't know. It was a fucking dairy farm. They had like cows and shit. Why couldn't well, they have dairy? These these kids were already going through some shit, so I would imagine that maybe they mis mistook milk for 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 water. Water. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it was in a white cup. It looked like milk. Little kids have no idea what milk is. Well. As I said, sins as small as maybe spilling the tea. Uh, the children said that they were struck with a paddle known as the helper. They were to train for the final battle, so they were instructed to actually fight each other. And if they didn't fight hard enough and beat the shit out of each other enough, they were beaten with the helper as well. I, the beatings just happened if you were a child. I'm sure if you were anyone, you probably just got beat up. Broken physically and mentally. Cult values. Apart from the Bible courses, girls were permitted to sleep as late as they wished, but the guys were forced to get up as early as 5.30 a.m. for exercise, which a report described as marching, drilling, and running, possibly with firearms. Definitely with firearms. Yeah, 100% with firearms. That doesn't sound like gender equality. I don't think David Koresh was about gender equality. I, I like the gladiatorial games that he's got going on. Seems very interesting. All right, everybody, get out there. Give it your all. Beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> when you're talking about being in full belief of the final apocalyptic battle mm. of humans on Earth, then I guess if you already believe that, then you're going to fight hard. Yeah, you got to train. You got to. Yeah, you got to train for what come through the clouds. <laughs> I, I can't really imagine being able to wrap your head around the fact that human firearms could do anything for you <laughs> in some sort of biblical end time event. Like you are fighting demons and angels and you think your you're, you know, tiny nine mils are going to do anything. I don't know. <laughs> Just get vaporized like John Reed's dog. Yeah. Shoot him with the 22, Billy. Shoot him with the 22. <laughs> just a single action bolt rifle. Pating, pating, pating. He's just like, I'm shooting him as fast as I can. Just literally bouncing off his face. And just gets hit with a plasma ray. Just incinerated gun and all. He heavenly divine Billy. <laughs> he showed him the power of Christ. <laughs> All right. David Koresh told children to call their parents dogs. Wow. All right. And only he was to be referred to as their father. Girls as young as 12 were given a plastic star of David, signifying that they had, quote, the light and were ready to have sex with the cult leader. 
Jesus, Dave. Come on, man. Damn it, Dave. Well, we mentioned this a little bit earlier. It said the only legal marriage that Koresh ever had was to a 14-year-old girl named Rachel Jones. And her age was legal under Texas law as her parents gave permission for the marriage. They were married in 1984. They had two kids, one named Cyrus and the other one Star. And those kids, imagine getting them on the show. So there's another former member named Sheila Martin who moved into the compound with her husband and brought her five kids with her in 1988. And she's actually quoted as saying, It was fun as long as we were being obedient. If we weren't being obedient in the sense of like, I went to the store and bought something that, you know, it, it was being selfish. He always would let us know if it wasn't right and we should have done it differently. And many times it was in front of everyone. Are we going to incorporate accents from now on? Yeah, I think it's a good addition. Okay. You know what, guys, we're moving into a new season. Yeah. You know, I think I think it really just brings that extra little uh, panache to the show. Former followers said discipline was constantly administered. Joanne Vega, who was six years old when she left the compound, said she remembers being hit regularly. And, quote, as a kid, being disciplined was like a 24-7 thing. There's nothing that you could do right is how I felt as a kid. That fear that nothing you can do is going to be good enough. You're raised with just fear. Everything is fear. Wow, that's sad. Six-year-old kid is saying that? Well, I mean, the adult is saying that, but six-year-old feeling that way. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a pleasant place to be. It almost makes me believe that these people were coerced verbally into some situation, obviously a cult, but then quickly realized that it's kind of like one of those situations where if you leave, we're going to kill you. But Hmm. I don't know if people were willingly coming and going under Koresh. I don't know if you came and there were parameters. Like I think the parameters were that if you were to leave and you came with your wife and their kids, then their wife and the kids stay but you leave as a man, as a male. Think so? I think so. Cause I believe in the 2018 Waco series that was, I think it's on Paramount plus now, but it was on Hulu, David Koresh and another member, a male member. And he wanted to leave and take his family. And I think that was the stipulation. Well, you can go, but they stay. Why would yeah. anybody be okay with that? That's, That's why I think they were. I think there was probably some seedy business and, who knows if people got offed? It gets even uh, weirder, like we were saying. Husbands were actually to relinquish their wives to David as he was creating a whole new line of people to survive this so-called biblical apocalypse. And some believed he fathered at least 15 or 16 kids throughout the time of being at the top, the top G. And all the male followers were actually to remain celibate, so they couldn't even have sex with their wives or anyone. And they were told that if Koresh had sex with a woman, she was officially in the, quote, house of David. Later on, a team of therapists said that all of these were some of the things that 19 of the 21 surviving children of the Branch Davidian cult had told them about their lives inside of the compound. So this was happening, all of it, all all of what we've been discussing happened on a massive scale to a lot of people. It wasn't just a couple of confined 
cases or offshoot incidences, this was happening widespread throughout the compound. Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably for many years. Yeah. So 87 to 92. So for at least five years, as big as it was and how many members were in there, it was probably rampant daily. Which is why I said it could be a situation where, like, you can't leave. Almost a hostage situation. Mm. Not like in Heaven's Gate where you could leave, but people were just so brainwashed that they didn't. Who do you think was more indoctrinated? Like, looking at it from that point of view, do you think that Branch Davidians were more indoctrinated or Heaven's Gate? I know it's I know it's a little different and there obviously were like children involved and all this other stuff with Heaven's Gate, but there was the suicide part of it. But on the other end of it with the Branch Davidians, there was giving up your children essentially to a grown man and him mm. just saying, Yeah, I could have sex with them whenever I want. You know, your children and your wife. And I think that the difference was is that Obviously, Heaven's Gate had the end goal was for them to leave. And his end goal is to build as build an army. Yeah, I feel like Heaven's Gate wasn't built on a foundation of fear. And more so, like you said, that sort of end goal. They all had this similar thing that they were going to go and do. And they all believed with their whole hearts that they were going to get off planet in some sort of alien craft that was hiding in the tail of the comet. Whereas this, they were scared for your life. Like we mentioned in that quote earlier, everything was about fear everywhere 24-7. almost want to say Heaven's Gate was more indoctrinated, but it depends on your definition of indoctrination. Hmm. Yeah, I feel like maybe Davidians wouldn't have committed suicide if they were told to do so. Probably not. Oh boy. This is where the authorities start to get a little bit involved. On top of the previous allegations, a team led by Dr. Bruce D. Perry, chief of psychiatry at Texas Children's Hospital, and in another incident, President Clinton, as well as the FBI, conducted weeks-long investigations into allegations that children inside the compound were being physically and sexually abused. With the only known evidence for those assertions being allegations by former cult members from two years prior. And this is kind of what I was talking about earlier, where, yeah, you had the allegations coming in, but what got the authorities to kind of get their foot in the door was the allegation of this meth selling. There were these little stepping stones along the way where law enforcement was trying to work their way in and trying to do these things to, to figure out what these guys were doing. But the meth kind of kicks it off. The sexual abuse claims that kind of kicks it off. So it's like weapons charges. Yeah. Weapons charges come on later. It's very interesting to kind of see the timeline in which law enforcement was trying to kind of suss out what was, what was going on in this place. Yeah, it was probably a couple of years, 1990 or so, maybe even 89, when they really probably started to poke in. It was definitely in the late 80s with the gun stuff, because from his previous attempted murder charges of getting into a yeehaw gunfight over just property, which was crazy. A six-month-long investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protection Services in 1992 
failed to actually turn up any evidence because the Branch Davidians possibly concealed the actual, as they say, spiritual marriage of Koresh to Rachel Jones, which would probably be under that Texas marriage law. Mm. Because I believe Rachel Jones' parents were a part of the Branch Davidians as well. Of course, David, you can marry our daughter. Additionally, the ATF wanted to arrest Koresh for unlawful possession of a destructive device, and they searched the 77-acre compound. But in recent years, despite all of the allegations, many current cult members and their lawyers have insisted all such charges are baseless. That was probably part of your meth raid, too. Mm. A federal undercover officer who infiltrated the Branch Davidian compound testified in 1995 that his superiors ignored his warnings that the sex leader knew he was about to be arrested by government agents. As we move forward, you will see how inept law enforcement really becomes. I got to save some of it for my final thought, but yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like 9-11. Ironic. Now, the federal agent that Mike is talking about, his name is Robert Rodriguez, and he was part of the ATF. And he told two House subcommittees that were investigating the two botched federal raids on the compound that the leader, David Koresh, vowed that, quote, neither the ATF nor the National Guard will ever get me, end quote. He knew. He was ready, too. He stated... He turns to me and says, they're coming, Robert. The time has come. The agent said, I knew for sure that he knew. And that meant a federal raid would fulfill the self-styled Messiah's vision of Armageddon. Mm. That is the biblical end times. The FBI and the ATF blowing you apart with tanks and tear gas. You got to think about it like it's really crazy to get into that mindset of knowing that like this. Yeah, it's it's just law enforcement. It's part of society and the National Guard and federal agents. But to take that and twist it into like this is your prophecy of Armageddon. You're literally visioning these people. These are the demons from the hellfire that you're coming after. It's here. The time's come. (laughs) Oh, and so the raid begins. Believing that the group was illegally stockpiling weapons on top of child abuse charges, the ATF obtained both an arrest warrant for Koresh and a search warrant for the compound. And on February 28, 1993, more than 70 ATF agents attempted to raid the complex. Gunfire erupted. Now, it is uncertain who fired first. Officials said that the Branch Davidians opened fire on the ATF agents first, but then the ATF and FBI say otherwise. Mm. And the raid is a very interesting part of this entire story. Obviously, it's the culmination. It's the, the real the real meat and potatoes of the subject. But uh, apparently the ATF showed up dressed up as uh, pizza delivery guys. <laughs> For the first attempt, I believe. For, yeah, for for the first attempt to get onto the land to kind of scope it out, they, they tried to deliver them pizza. And I guess like all these ATF agents and the federal agents that showed up, they all, they all came in on cow trucks and stuff. 
<laughs> like cow trailers. <laughs> they had SR fifty hiding in the pizza delivery bags, the heat concealing <laughs> bags, just massive nine foot long rifle poking out the end of it. <laughs> well, think about it. I believe Rodriguez infiltrated them months before. I think he was a part. He was he actually became like a pseudo member. He was actually living alongside them at one point, or at least was able to get in the compound, and they didn't know he was a cop. The raid, dubbed Operation Trojan Horse, was supposed to allow the ATF agents to get close to the compound while hiding behind horse trailers before the Branch Davidians realized that's what was going on. The raid included the ATF, FBI, Texas National Guard, as well as state police. Wait, so these guys are just rolling up in early 1990s F-150s with horse trailers and like the Davidians aren't like, who ordered the 15 horses? Well, if you look at the aerial of it or like a lot of the footage that was coming from uh, helicopter footage and stuff like that. So there's a long road, like a long dirt road that leads up to the compound. And then that leads out to like a main road. So they were parking the trailers and stuff of like where all the agents were coming out of on the main road. So they were up by the tree line of the main road. They would eventually move them up the dirt road. But when they first showed up, that's where they were. They made it look like they were just a bunch of horse people. Horse people. (laughs) Horse people. (laughs) Well, before the operation began... Koresh was actually informed of it when FBI agent Blake Baudelaire boarded the lead trailer. He remembered an agent saying, quote, if they know we're coming, why are we going? That's the question. That is the question. I think that's folly number one. Them not formulating like a really solid plan. Yeah. You know, the first part of this inept plan was actually put into place days before Mm. when the ATF told local newspapers that they were going to raid the compound. And the Davidians read that newspaper. So literally like two days before the raid, the ATF decided to let the news media know that they were going to do this. I'm trying to think of some sort of strategic angle on the ATF end of it to where like it would benefit them for the Davidians to know that they were coming somehow, but I can't think of one. (laughs) It seems to me so far that the ATF just seemed to not have a very good handle on how prepared they might've been, but you think that they would, if they had an, an agent that was infiltrated. Maybe it was to prevent the killing of children, right? So if the Davidians knew that law enforcement was coming, okay, put all the kids in the basement, put all the kids in this room in the center of the house, and then all the able-bodied adults, man a window with your rifles, and that way they could pick off the actual harmful people from the roadside. Meanwhile, all the kids are hopefully bunkered away somewhere safe in the house. Unfortunately, that didn't end up being the case, but maybe it was to protect the kids somehow. Even though they were selling guns legally, if they, because the, what the arrest warrant was initially for a explosive device or a suspicious device, some type of, you know, they might've thought he had bombs or grenades or something along those lines. They would have known that if they had that many weapons and 
from what they were getting in reports of all the abuse. This must have been an investigation that brought that all together, but the easiest way to obtain an arrest warrant because it was clear cut was the selling of weapons. But he was clearly had an armory going on in that compound. And as we just said, in preparation and during this actual standoff, when the ATF agents started to encroach the building, Koresh passed out all of the weapons around the compound. And these guys were stacked, stacked up. They had long rifles, M16s, AKs. They were ready to go. They had gas masks. These people were ready for war, essentially. I don't know why they weren't wearing Kevlar. They should have. So they were stocked and they knew that they were coming. If you have a leader that can mastermind 80 something people, you think that he's stupid enough to not know that you're coming and prepare for it. After they got to the building, not sure who fired the first shot, three hour gunfight ensued, which five Branch Davidians and four federal agents were actually killed in those three hours. To put it simply, this was an absolute shit show and a 51-day standoff followed, ending on April 19th, during which the FBI took over from the ATF. Hostage negotiators tried to convince Koresh to surrender. Meanwhile, tactical experts planned for a second raid that would rely on CS gas, which is a type of tear gas, to drive the group members out of the compound. CS gas is the type of gas that they use when you join the military and they lock you in that room mm, yeah. and they tell everybody to take their mask off and mm -hmm. they do it for like 10 seconds while these guys were dropping fucking CS gas for like hours on the people in this compound. Hushlings will return after this short message. Greetings, Hushlings. Since its beginning, starting in the 1940s, opposition to water fluoridation has existed. Opponents view it as an infringement of individual rights, if not an outright violation of medical ethics. During the 1950s and 1960s, conspiracy theorists claimed that fluoridation was a communist plot to undermine American public health. And water that has concentrations that are well above recommended levels can and have several long-term adverse effects. Since it's a neurotoxin, some have even claimed a link between fluoride, pregnant women, and the IQ of their children. Yet national and international health agencies and dental associations throughout the world have endorsed water fluoridation as safe and effective. The American Dental Association even calls water fluoridation one of the safest and most beneficial, cost-effective public health measures for preventing and controlling, and in some cases, reversing tooth decay. Grab your little cup and be sure to swish and rinse with us for our season eight premiere and 71st debriefing as we turn on the faucet of all the conspiracies associated with water fluoridation. Streaming everywhere, Monday, April 10th. Hushlings, we'd like to let you know that Rockfin is officially the home of the new Hush Hush Society video content. It is the exclusive home to all of our debriefings, declassified discussions, and all of our video content. It's very easy to go over there, rockfin.com forward slash Hush Hush Society, and you can subscribe to our channel. And be sure to check out our website, the one-stop shop for everything Hush related. There you can find all of our blogs, our audio debriefings, links to our merch, as well as all of our social media links. 
Lastly, if you love our show and want to support us in becoming a better podcast, look us up on Patreon. We've got a ton of exclusive content over there for only $5 a month. That's www.patreon.com forward slash hush hush society. And as always, Hushlings, we would welcome you to leave us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere that you're able to leave us a rating, including our website. Welcome back to the Hush Hush Society Conspiracy Hour. They were literally puncturing holes in the building mm-hmm. with tanks and shooting CS gas like canisters, not just grenades. See, that's where it gets foggy, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Were they using tear gas grenades, CS grenades, or were they using the tank, what was coming out on the tank? Because what's portrayed is that these guys were using literal, like, machinery to pump this gas into this building. There's so much that happened in those 51 days where I'm sure both sides were just at a stalemate and it was just phone calls. And I think total, it's like 60 or 70 hours of negotiating and phone calls that they have on file. And as far as who fired first... Apparently, years later, this investigation would kind of continue into what happened at Waco since it was a big clusterfuck. And they had a weapons expert come and look at certain evidence that they had, and they found that there were only entrance gunshots into the building and no exit gunshots out from the building. How they were able to tell that, I could not tell you. There was one incident of ATF agents up on the roof of the building and two of them had breached into the window and literally immediately after the third ATF agent throws a grenade into the same room that his two ATF agent buddies just went into and they counted that as deaths that were caused by Davidians. There's like video of it happening. You can literally watch it happen. Well, I guess on the grand scheme of things, it was due to the Davidians. That's why they were there in the first place, but... Technically, technically. Technically, if you want to look at it with an overhead view. (laughs) We've got the flare footage. (laughs) And we're talking about a 51-day raid. Keep in mind, ATF agents literally thought this was going to take a couple hours. They literally thought they were just going to stroll in there, it was going to get done, and that was it. And there's video and audio of ATF agents and FBI agents outside the compound talking about killing Davidians and laughing about it and thinking that it was kind of a joke that they were firing on this compound and all these things were going on and people were dying. They were laughing it off. But also keep in mind, this is a place that had a bunch of children inside. Let's jump into the final day of the raid. This is where things really get uh, kind of fucked up, as if they weren't already. Shortly before 6 a.m. on April 19th of 1993, federal agents called the compound and told the group to surrender, or they would hit the compound with tear gas, as we previously mentioned. A Branch Davidian threw the phone out of the door. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I don't want to hear you. it. Fuck you! Yeah. <laughs> Take the phone. I'm done talking. At 6.04 a.m., an armored vehicle started punching holes in the building and sending tear gas inside. Yeah. So that's what we were talking about a couple minutes ago was them punching holes in the building with tanks and armored vehicles like they're trying to take Stalingrad. Now, this gets very deep with this FBI agent, Byron Sage. Uh, We could go on for episodes on episodes 
about this subject and we say that a lot, but in the morning he started instructing Koresh and the followers to exit the building, like Mike said, and no one budged. Also guys, I saw it right before we started recording Waco. We ain't coming out. I saw it on a t-shirt on Etsy. It's funny. <laughs> I wonder how many people actually screamed that during the raid. <laughs> we ain't coming out. <laughs> Could be a few, you know, they threw the phone out the front door. And over the next few hours, he stood inside a small house that the FBI had dubbed Sierra One Alpha, just across the road from Mount Carmel. That's something I do remember from that series, is that guy would report to that house. And that's where they would get suspicious of this ATF agent that was undercover trying to make nice with them. And I think one of them had seen him at some point going to that house, and they didn't know who owned that property. Somebody had just purchased it, and it was clearly the FBI. Gary Nosner, one of the negotiators and 30-year veteran working for the FBI, including a decade as the FBI's chief hostage negotiator, stalled when Koresh delayed his surrender and tensions heightened. It's in the handbook. It's got to work. Looks good on paper, I'm sure. Combat engineering vehicles doused the Davidians with tear gas. Sage kept hoping to see members of the group filing out toward the road. Instead, shortly after noon, flames began to shoot out of the building. It just absolutely combusted. It's probably all that good math. Well, Sage is one of the big guys that's still talking about Waco today and still believes that the FBI didn't start those fires and allegedly didn't even fire back on the first day. Part of these negotiations also included Koresh kind of stalling. So he, mm -hmm. along this period of time, kept telling the FBI that he would come out once he was done writing the Seven Seals. Yes. As we spoke of before, thought this was an Armageddon type of situation, apocalyptic. I need to write the Seven Seals to start the apocalypse. So in his head, this is the best way to do it. I'm in this standoff. Now's the time to get writing. He tells the FBI negotiations, look, I'm going to write the seven seals. As soon as I'm done with the seventh book, we'll come out. No gunfire, no nothing, no problem. As soon as it's done, we'll all surrender. The FBI for a long time, again, over the course of this 51 days, were kind of giving the benefit of the doubt to Koresh and saying, okay, you said that you were going to do this. When you're done with it, you guys will come out. We'll give you some time. So that's what kind of stalled the negotiations and stalled everything that took place and made this standoff and this raid take so long is that they were stalling on both ends of it. I think it's amazing that they also had somebody that was able to become a like initiate of the cult itself for during that time period that that happened. Like they began to become friends until they found out the inevitable. But realistically, do we know like what the guidelines were for joining this? Was it kind of a take anyone type of situation? Oh, yeah, we need an extra man that can go out and sell guns for us or we need somebody that can help us out on the farm or whatever. How hard would it have been to go and join? Probably wasn't a very prestigious position. On a side note. FBI did get involved with this situation eventually because ATF agents were killed. They got involved on the final day, I believe. Like yeah. they, were, they were the second raid. Yeah, and that's also what brought out the military. It became a federal issue. It became a federal issue because federal officers were killed. 
tons of stuff happened on the final day. You had the ATF try it. It turned out to be not working. Then the FBI pulled it back and then brought in, like you said, the National Guard. And that's obviously how they probably obtained tanks and armored vehicles and Blackhawks circling the compound. And also one thing that we didn't mention is that during these 51 days, they tried many things like blinding lights at the building for nights on end and like loud piercing music. They tried to use like sonic type warfare on them and hit them with high pitched sounds and really loud music. They tried all these things to just get them out of there and drive them nuts. But they endured. They played for hours on end the sound of killing a sheep. Oh, well, I mean, honestly, good on them for trying that sort of warfare before, you know, absolutely setting the building ablaze. True. Have you ever heard what a sheep dying sounds like? I could. I could imagine. It's fucking terrifying. It's gross. Actually, It's very violent. Allegedly, the Davidians fired as many as 200 rounds at the agents in response. The FBI maintained agents did not return fire at all. Find that hard to believe. (laughs) Hours later, none of the Davidians had emerged from the compound, but agents continued using tanks and tear gas. Jeff Gwynn, who is a best-selling author that wrote books like Manson, The Road to Jonestown, War on the Border, and Waco, he says, quote, Almost one-third of the ATF agents were actually carried away injured, bleeding, or dead from this fight. And before noon on this day, ATF is dragging itself away like a defeated army, end quote. But they didn't have too many agents that died, so how Mm. many agents did they actually have in this operation? I know like 16 were wounded or something like that. I want to say that a lot of these agents hurt them fucking selves. (laughs) Shot themselves in the foot to get away from the screaming, dying goats? Yeah, could be. (laughs) so there was a fucked up instance of this entire situation that i thought was just absolutely wild one of the tanks makes their way around the back of the compound and again this is like a FLIR footage type of thing something that they actually saw and out of the back door you see uh some people that were trying to escape essentially davidians that were trying to get out and ATF and FBI agents were waiting for them outside of the door and proceeded to fire at them as they were coming out surrendering. Wow. I thought they didn't fire their weapons. Yeah. Again, what they maintained versus what was caught on film and documented is two very different things. To further talk about how ridiculous this was. So apparently one of the tanks during the siege had uh, one of its tracks destroyed and left the tank immobile the fbi literally sent out (laughs) a fucking wrecker okay to hook up the tank to tow the tank out of there in the in the middle of the siege imagine being that company that has to come in to to tow a a tank i think it would take more than your average uh (laughs) dr's towing from downtown (laughs) what am i picking up here yeah, you see that fucking 45-ton tank out there? <laughs> Just drive into the gunfire. Grab that oh for us. God. You got chains with you? Probably going to need a chain. <laughs> That's wild that we left so much military equipment in the Middle East for uh, terrorists to have for free, but 
the the risk of one immobile tank for the Davidians was far too much to risk. They had to get a towing company, a rigging company out there, get that tank out. During that 51-day standoff, the FBI was able to secure the release of 44 people, according to the agency's records. Koresh had 117 conversations with the FBI negotiators that lasted about 60 hours, according to authorities. Koresh was among the 75 people found dead in the aftermath of the blaze. Many of the deceased had fatal gunshot wounds to the head, chest, and or face, authorities said. Koresh had a gunshot wound right dead square in the middle of his forehead. I tried to find like confirmation and fact check it, but there was something that I had read that he was actually shot in the stomach earlier in the raid and recovered, like didn't die from it and was wounded. He just healed up like a superhero. Yeah, he was Jesus. But there's nothing like in like the autopsy that said he had a gunshot wound to the abdomen. In one of the videos, doesn't it show that he was shot in the shoulder or something or in the arm? That might have been it. It might have been the arm or the shoulder. Yeah. It was He got hit. And I think it might have been in the first day of the actual raid that he got hit. And he went 51 days with that injury. Imagine getting benched that early in the season. Authorities would say that the others either joined in a mass suicide or were the victims of mercy killings or were somehow trapped inside of the building. Of course, no blame there. In fact, 20 of those who died in the fire were killed by other Davidians. Most were shot at point-blank range, including Koresh and five children. But autopsies showed the Davidians also stabbed one three-year-old to death. What? It's brutal. It's brutal. So these guys were just shooting each other towards the end instead of burning to death, I guess. I guess because it, all right. So if you if you look at what what was happening, the tanks were pretty much moving throughout the compound, mm -hmm. and towards the end, the Davidians that were left within the compound had moved into like a basement, mm. um, or like a a bunker almost, like a low cost bunker, and the tanks were like on top of their hatchway for them to get out. So there was no way for them to get out Jeez. and keep in mind the building was on fire Yeah, and there was fire everywhere. Tear gas. So maybe, yeah, tear gas still going off, gunfire still going off. I know it's hard to place yourself there, but think about it. If you were there, bunch of kids, bunch of families that you all knew, the fire is fucking going. There's no way to get out. Uh. You have guns. And you're stuck. I mean, are you going to let little kids burn to death or are you going to, like they said, mercy kill? In the aftermath, some believe that the government wasn't fully informed about Koresh and his followers before they decided to confront the group so aggressively. One of the agents is quoted in testimony saying, quote, the Davidians were exactly what you'd expect them to be if you knew their theology and had done any research beforehand. But if the FBI had known what they were all about before they started, they would have never done the raid. It was a botched deal. The FBI has since reformed the way it deals with standoffs, end quote. So this was a learning experience, realistically. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And after some of the surviving children's release, they said that because of Mr. Koresh's treatment of them, virtually all the children actually, interestingly enough, expressed their affection for him. And some drew hearts and some wrote I love David on them during therapy sessions, which is weird because the 
punishment that they allegedly dealt with was terrible. That goes into the indoctrination of these kids and True. how True. hypnotized they really were. And our, our boy, uh, Byron Sage, is compelled to still, to this day, to defend the FBI. And his defense doesn't actually include the ATF or its initial raid on the compound. So he's like, it's not the FBI's fault. It's their fault. Sage stated, we would not have carried out the raid at that compound. He says, if you had a subject warranted on minor gun charges who is potentially violent, lives at a fortified compound where there are women and children, it's the last place on earth I'd have tried to orchestrate a raid. We got called into the middle of it and inherited the mess. So they just kind of like threw up his hands and like backed away slowly. Like it's not our yeah. fault. It ain't the FBI's fault. This is your mess. We're cleaning it up. Yeah. A few years later, a Gulf War veteran named Timothy McVeigh and his friend Terry Nichols, who knew the group well, believed the government had committed mass murder at Mount Carmel. On April 19th of 1995, on the second anniversary of the fire, McVeigh parked a rider truck filled with 4,800 pounds of explosives in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City and lit two fuses. The bomb killed 167 people, 19 of them children. That's an episode that we will definitely have to get into. Yeah, and we'll put the relationship between some some of the members of the group and McVeigh himself. There is a series coming up very soon, I think on Paramount+, Plus, which is the sequel to this Waco series that came out in 2018 with the same some of the same cast as the FBI where Timothy McVeigh, I think is actually in it. I think it's the, the it's called the aftermath. So no shit. Yeah. It looks interesting. I don't have Paramount plus, so it's not really worth it. Hushlings. If you feel like giving us your password to Paramount plus, we'll take it. Email us and we'll do a watch party. Yeah. Send us, send us your credentials and we'll yeah. stream it. Yeah. <laughs> One opinion is that had the ATF just picked up Koresh on one of his runs, the whole debacle could have probably been avoided. One of the worst aspects is that none of the managers responsible for the stupidity suffered any consequences whatsoever. Years later, in 2000, the Danforth Report concluded, quote, Government agents did not start or spread the tragic fire of April 19, 1993 did not direct gunfire at the Branch Davidians that day and did not unlawfully employ the armed forces of the United States. In fact, what is remarkable is the overwhelming evidence exonerating the government from the charges made against it, end quote. Real quick, what do you guys think that they could have done differently? For me, my opinion is I think they should have fucking talked to each other and made a better coordinated effort or just picked him up on minor gun charges. It seems like talking wasn't really working out. Yeah, I guess. Step one, don't tell the media that you're going to raid this compound. True. True. Step two, don't have a bunch of federal agents show up there. Just send like fucking four guys and yeah. say, hey, with we pizzas. need to talk. <laughs> yeah, with pizzas, obviously. Yeah. The amount of casualties at Waco are... Um, Staggering. There were four ATF agents killed, 16 wounded. 
of the Davidians, six were killed on February 28th, and 76 were killed on April 19th, as well as 11 wounded, equaling a total of 82 killed. So I'd say overall success. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the ATF the ATF took that game of Team Deathmatch with a fell swoop. The Davidians stood no chance, unfortunately. The question remains, is tear gas flammable? As we stated multiple times, they were absolutely berating the compound with the tear gas, and at some point, something started a fire. And according to TamingFires.com, tear gas cartridges can cause severe trauma if they directly hit a person, obviously. This can cause bruising, skull fracture, vascular injuries, and even death. Fire hazards associated with tear gases include potentially very toxic fumes produced by the burning of a tear gas and flash fires. Normally, tear gases are not capable of bursting into flames and starting a fire. Additionally, another question, is CS gas actually flammable? which is what they used. CS gas is the most common tear gas used in riot control. Tear gas has a low flammability. When subjected to an ignition source such as naked flame or an electrical spark, most common tear gases will only catch on fire if they are priorly exposed to high temperatures. So it kind of has to be primed up yeah. in the event that it might catch fire. So if you're shooting it at room temperature or even cooled, even if it hits a, a live spark or a flame or something, it probably won't catch. Yeah. ATF agents were just holding Zippos up to the grenades <laughs> before they, well, they probably had it. them down in their pants or some shit. Warm this up for me, Ted. Some believe that the FBI used pyrotechnic rounds. And in 1999, the FBI admitted that they had used pyrotechnic rounds. Sus. Sus. Jeff Gwynn stated, in small doses, the gas wasn't supposed to be flammable, and it wasn't supposed to be really too physically affecting beyond irritation to eyes and skin. It would be enough if inserted gradually so the Branch Davidians would come out. Did it Did it seem like it was being inserted gradually? or uh... <laughs> It got inserted somehow. Yeah. It, was, it was inserted. Now, that's their point of view. Like, oh, that couldn't have started the fire. So there's the question, did the Davidians start the fire? They definitely could have started the fire, but like, why? They were getting cold. The apocalypse. Yeah, the apocalypse. That's right. It was part of his end time prophecy. It's like he said, why would they start the fire? You know? And keep in mind, during this 51 days, like, the FBI, true to nature, had turned off all the power, had turned off the water, had turned off all these things, you know, because that's the hostage negotiation tactic. Hmm. Rough times, man. So maybe accidentally they started the fire if they didn't have heat or electricity or hmm. running gas, if they shut their gas shutoffs off. Maybe they had small little propane stoves or heaters or something like that. It's easy to start a fire with something like that with your, with your bean making machine. Arson experts did say that three other fires could have been started simultaneously. One survivor was actually covered in lighter fluid, but the Davidians still say they did not start the fire. Covered in lighter fluid. Jesus. So allegedly there was a milk carton that was bugged in one of the kitchens in the Davidian compound. And there's a conversation between about six guys that talk about starting the fire that was listened to 
through surveillance audio. And one of the first Davidians that goes, hey, should we start the fire? To a second one who goes, got some fuel around here. A third one chimes in right here. A fourth one chimes in, did you pour it yet? Fifth one, huh? <laughs> and a fourth one, back to the fourth. Did you pour it yet? Back to the fifth, I haven't. A fifth one says, huh? And back to the fourth, did you pour it yet? They chime back and forth, I haven't yet. Another one says, David said, pour it, right? Did he? Do you want it poured? Come on, let's pour it. Do you want it poured already? Question. So it goes on and on, but it's very uh, interesting if it's an actual real audio recording of them kind of sabotaging their compound, then they would have started the fire. The only other way that I could think CS gas would do it is if it sparked on something and there was an ignition source, like it hit like a grain silo or something, you know, <laughs> like that's, or it hit like a, a closet full of sheets and just ignited. But the man covered in lighter fluid, maybe they were just going to burn it down. Mm. I, I'm calling bullshit on the transcript. That seems like such a made up conversation to me. Yeah, five people involved in that conversation, and you're just going, huh? Did you pour huh? it? What pour do you got going it. on? David What's wants David Koresh wants it poured at Mount Carmel in yeah. the compound yeah. in which we are currently standing. Maybe that's why that guy was covered in lighter fluid. If I was part of that conversation, I would probably just be like, ah, fuck it, and just pour it all over myself. <laughs> yeah, well, they were going down with the ship. Now, interestingly enough, the Branch Davidians actually still exist today. Uh, the group didn't completely die out after the Waco debacle. Nine Davidians escaped the fire, as well as a bunch of children, and the group still hasn't completely dissolved. A new group called the Branch the Lord of Our Righteousness, with a new compound built around the old Waco space. I would have gotten the fuck off that land. I mean, they own the land. Yeah, might as well use yeah. it, right? For True. a new cult and a new building with new people. With a new leader, some Davidians were still meeting regularly for Bible study back in 2013, and some believed Koresh might return from the dead to lead them once again. A quote says, David came to give us a message and a hope. One survivor, Sheila Martin, told People magazine, quote, We hope to see him again. Our regret is only that we didn't serve God better, end quote. <sighs> and unfortunately, in, in God, she probably meant David. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Survivor's guilt, you think? Yeah. All right, hushlings. Let's dive into our Reddit section. As you know, this is when we scour the subreddits of Reddit to find anything that we might have missed or anything interesting within those subreddits. We found a user who goes by GoFundMe Me Today says, If the Branch Davidians and David Koresh surrendered peacefully at Waco, was the government going to put 60 people on trial? He's quoted... Would they all be charged with conspiracy to murder federal agents? Would there be one big trial? Would Koresh be tried separately? Seems like it would have been a circus trying to figure out who and what to charge people with. End quote. I mean, were they going to charge the kids? They could have put them in some sort of um, facility, whether it be adoption services or some sort of youth correction facilities or something. I think... And I, I could be very wrong on this. The way I would see it going is possibly that 
Koresh would have been charged with murder and a bunch of other things. And maybe the rest of them would have been charged with conspiracy for murder or assault or federal agent, that type mm. of thing. Because, uh, yeah, he does make a good point. Like, you can't really pinpoint who shot who and who's responsible for whose death. Yeah. But I think in the grand scheme of things, they could have p- just pinned it on Koresh. Just for masterminding the whole... Yeah, I know it's not the same thing, but think about, like, Manson, like the Manson family setup. Charles Manson himself didn't commit any of the murders, but he was behind it in a psychological way. So I think they would kind of look at it as in the same way. Like Koresh, all right, maybe you didn't murder anybody, but you were definitely the driving force behind this. Yeah. All right, boys. All right, hushlings. Let's get into our final thoughts on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. Declassified Davidian, let us know. <laughs> your final thoughts um this was a pretty horrible situation the davidians themselves and the treatment that they endured and how crazy david koresh probably really was uh was also a horrible situation don't get involved in cults i guess i could say like that especially ones where you got to cuck yourself that's pretty bad and little kids are involved my big thought on this is the discombobulation and miscommunication between the ATF and maybe using the national guard and probably Texas state police at some point were there on top of the FBI being there. It seemed like the ATF didn't really want to cooperate with anybody. They were like that baby child. That's like, no, I want to do it. Like be proud of me. And they wanted to nail it and they couldn't. And unfortunately it was so mismanaged that it just turned into this thing on top of writing of the seven seals. That was a good diversion to keep themselves alive. I just think it's terrible that it all happened and it probably could have been handled completely differently if they would have just brought, maybe they didn't bring enough pizzas. Maybe that's what set them off. All I will say about this is that the federal government for as much as David Koresh was doing these things behind the scene and whatever else was going on within this cult and whatever else was going on within that compound, the U.S. government and its federal agents handled this completely incorrectly. They caused the death of many people when it could have been avoided completely. I think that, like I said, if they had gone in with maybe a few guys and they said, hey, We're getting reports of this. This is what's going on. Can we talk to you? Can we figure this out? Instead of going in guns blazing and alerting the media to a raid, which in itself is a head scratcher. Why the hell would you tell the media that you're going to go and do this? I think it was just mishandled all around. As Dave said, very tragic that children died from this and be very interesting to speak to a survivor of this i think i will uh try to do my due diligence and find someone don't hold me to that great idea It'll probably be very difficult to do but... yeah oh slick frog sanders slick slick frog 
what's your final thoughts on the Branch Davidians? Frog's final thought. So awesome. I love coming into song every time. It's really good. We we need to add little like piano notes to that. Nice little segue. Yeah, absolutely terribly handled. Like both of you guys said, obviously the situation could have been avoided. At the same time, I'm sure it's not an easy job to handle something like this. The odds of them just killing four peaceful agents trying to talk it out were probably slim to none, though. Because if they did initiate against some some small group of guys trying to talk it out, full force of the ATF, FBI would have been there regardless. When it comes to releasing the raid to the press for the Davidians to eventually read, I'd like to think that maybe it was some sort of insurance policy on those three-letter agencies as sort of justification for doing what they were doing. Because like we said earlier in the episode, to the local communities, these were good people. They were serving their community well. They were wholesome and hearty and religious and so on and so forth so maybe by initiating that smear campaign they were able to justify the raid and justify the killings somehow yeah pretty much in total agreement with you guys absolutely twisted that this happened could have been gone about better all right hushlings that is going to do it for this episode on the Branch Davidians. What did you think? Was there anything that we missed? Anything that we should have discussed? Do you have any research that you found along the way that we should have looked into? Did we get smacked in the side of the head with a CS gas canister? Were we taken into the back room by Father Koresh and paddled? Reach out to us. As always, you can reach us at our email address, contact at hushhushsociety.com. We want to thank you, Hushlings. Uh, season 7 was a banger for us. A lot of mm-hmm. milestones that we hit along the way in these past few months for this season. So your support has been fucking amazing. And this conspiracy roundtable that we just released within these past three weeks, the response has been great. We love to work with other podcasters and really throw ideas around with people that we don't normally work with on a regular basis. So that was really great in itself. It was a lot of fun. And we definitely want to give thanks and appreciation for the guys and gal that was involved. Cult of Conspiracy, those two guys joined us. The Occult Rejects, NY Patriot, our boy. Donut, Reality Czars, Whiskey Beer and Conspiracies. Those guys are great. The Spiritual Gangsters, Teresa, and as well as... Your preceptors, you know, the real stars of the show. The real bing bongs. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I think everybody's kind of in talks about maybe doing another one, probably June-ish. Yes. That'd Three new topics, maybe some new shows involved. We'll keep you updated. Next up on the chalkboard, Hushlings, we need to ask a favor of you once again. We're trying to do an Ask Me Anything episode to be released sometime in April, so please send us your questions. They can be individual questions for one of the three of us. It can be a collective question for the three of us to answer absolutely anything. You can ask me my social security number and I might just give it to you. So please reach out to us. Let us know what you want to know and we will let you know. 
They might get you a better credit score. Oh, I pray. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about season eight for a minute. I know that you guys may be looking forward to seeing what our new topics are going to be for season eight. Just a few that we have been throwing around. Some have been on the books longer than others. Tartaria Mm -hmm. is something that we are going to get into. I know Declassified Dave is deeply rooted in that. That one will be coming out on my birthday. And then uh, we're going to get into Ruby Ridge, kind of along the same lines as Waco, a little yep. different, but, you know, government overreach, uh, getting into the Zodiac Killer, mm. and among other things that may or may not surprise you that we're going to do some dives into. So stay tuned. It's going to be quite the season, just like season seven was. Season seven was awesome. I think our lineup of topics were very good and you guys listen to the hell out of them and we've been very surprised and very humbled of how many people are enjoying the show, especially starting with us in season seven or late season six. So thank you in that with all that for you patrons, we have been flirting with the idea of some new stuff. We've asked around some of our patrons what they'd want to hear if they'd want to hear uncut episodes or listen to us have a recording or a new segment. Who knows? We may possibly also been flirting with the idea of releasing one of our exclusive debriefings to you, the listeners, to, you know, kind of see what you're missing. Because our Patreon is lots of fun. It's only five bucks a month. And you can join your boys for our season eight premiere where we will take a sip of that good, good fluoridated water in debriefing 71, which will be streaming everywhere on Monday, April 10th. And again, for you patrons, as always, another exclusive debriefing will be available this time on 420, where the boys somehow, some way, come up with a conspiracy or a cryptid while possibly under the influence of cannabis. Who knows? Maybe some higher than others. And that will be... Only available on Patreon, Thursday, April 20th. Again, thank you all for making Season 7 and everything that we've done such a blast and tons and tons of fun. I'm Declassified Dave. (laughs) And I'm Mystery Mike. And I'm Sick Frank Sanders. Until our next debriefing, remember, the best kept secrets are hidden in plain sight.